Maybe that's a feeling of agitation caused by the presence or imminence of danger. Why do you think people believe in ghosts? In my case, 
Oh, forget it. What? No, I can't. I... <laughs> Come on, tell me. Freedom. Sorry I'm late. There's all these protesters blocking the street right now. The cops shot this guy that lives down the street from here. They killed this man in his own home. Can you believe that? It's... Hey, I'm, I'm running really late. I'm so sorry. Take your pill. Don't forget, okay?
as I read your words, I imagine how it will feel to hold you in my arms at last. I know it will happen very soon. I almost have enough money saved for a plane ticket. Thanks to you. You are so generous. Love. and gentlemen and welcome back to Inside Movies Galore. I'm your host David Stregge and here in the room I have a music composer by the name of Trinity Velez Justo. Uh, is that correct? Justo. Velez Justo. Justo. Sorry for saying it incorrectly but uh, okay. why, don't, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and uh, what it is, is it that you do behind films? Sure. Um, so I am a composer for film and media. My background, I have a BA in music composition from UNC Chapel Hill. That's actually where I met um, Dane Kyle, Hello. who's also here. Um, and I have an MFA in film music composition from UNC School of the Arts. From there, I received the Emmys internship in music and moved out to Los Angeles. I worked with composers Michael Levine, who came up with the Kit Kat jingle. He worked on Resident Evil 7, uh, the first season of Siren. Okay. I also worked with Jeff Russo, who, well, he's, he's done a lot. So Star Trek Discovery, Fargo the TV series, Legion, Altered Carbon. Um, and then I also worked with Reinhold Heil, who was one of the composers for Cloud Atlas. He was the executive producer for 99 Red Balloons. And he also worked on Berlin Station. Now he's currently working on a bunch of Netflix shows. So from there, then I ended up becoming an assistant for two other independent film composers. Anton Sanko, who worked on Jezebel, The Possession, Ouija. And I worked with Craig Ritchie, who did Uncanny... uh, Oh, Girl on a Bicycle... He okay. also did, uh, it's on Hulu, Tiny Shoulders Rethinking Barbie, which I was able to receive an orchestration credit for. Nice. And, um, and then from there, I ended up moving back to, Los, uh, back to Charlotte, North Carolina, in order to pursue a full-time career in independent film. Because, unfortunately, over in L.A., you basically have to work as someone's assistant for 10 to 15 years, maybe more, before you get your you know, big gig and can actually mm-hmm. move forward. So I like to be there. If you have a <laughs> right, exactly. It's it's all luck. So um, so now I'm back here and I work full time as a composer for film and media, and I also teach on Mondays at UNCSA as an adjunct professor in the MFA Film Music Composition Program. So 
yeah, that's that's pretty much what I do. I also guest lecture and attend or guest lecture and speak at different film festivals, film events, universities, film nice. programs, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm all about educating the masses about film music. <laughs> and correct me if I'm wrong, but you worked uh, with Tyler Bates as well. Well, I did not work with him. I was able to uh, speak with him and, and sit down ah. with him and, and pick his brain, as well as uh, Nathan Barr, who's the guy who did mm. True Blood, Cabin Fever. Uh, no, sorry, Cabin in the Woods. Mm -hmm. And um, he did another one that's fairly popular, and I can't remember. Oh, uh, Hemlock Grove. He also okay. did Hemlock Grove. Yep. Okay. So um, ultimately, uh, what I figured I'd uh, do is I'd ask you, uh, I'm going to ask you about uh, some of the, the work that you've, uh, you've done so, uh, so far. So, uh, so what I do is, uh, what I normally do, uh, do is I go back to like maybe the first film that you worked on, work my way forward, and, uh, and ask you what exactly your job is on or involved behind these films. You understand what I'm saying? Yes. So basically, what is my job as a composer besides just writing music? Um, so I was actually just having a discussion with one of my students today about themes, right? So there are different types of composers out in the wild. And I'm the type that focuses on themes. I'm a thematic composer. And basically what that means is I not only emotionally support scenes. So basically I don't just write music that allows you to feel or helps you to feel an emotion with the scene, right? With what's going on in the story. So I don't, I don't just write music that makes you feel happy or sad or confused or suspense or whatever. Mm -hmm. I also create themes, which are basically these phrases of music that follow key concepts of the story. And I help to tell the story through those themes and how they evolve. Uh, three of those ways, I'm going to go into the nitty gritty, I hope, forgive me. But um, basically what that means, uh, so rather, there are three different ways so far that I have discovered out of the ways, out of what I have analyzed in film scores. One of the ways is uh, showing a character's development using a theme. So basically, let's say a theme follows a, a soldier in a war film. Okay, and at first he's timid, so the theme that follows him may only be supported with uh, maybe a woodwind or piano and strings. And then over time, as he gains courage, you start to hear the orchestration deepen so or thicken out. So you'll have strings and horns and uh, piano and percussion, et cetera, et cetera. And basically it helps to show the viewer how he is evolving as a character, uh, personality-wise and, and courage-wise, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it can evolve in different ways, but that's just an example. Okay. Another, uh, another way is to you use themes in lieu of dialogue. So you can tell the story using those themes without having any talking between characters and know exactly what's going on. So like, for example, in Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you have a scene where Indiana Jones is on the balcony next to 
Saul or Sala, his friend in Cairo. And you have Indiana Jones trying to decide what his next move is after Marion had just been kidnapped. Now, there's a phrase of music that's happening here, or actually a monumental piece of music here. There's, again, no conversation going on. But you know that despite Marion being an important subject, ultimately his priority is the Lost Ark because those two themes... So you hear Marion's theme, but it's... It is... How do I say this? Uh, the dissonant strings and the harmonics... It's, I'm going to get into... I don't want to get too technical so people lose me here, but <laughs> basically there are strings that... Uh, these, these notes, or pitches that are played by the strings that are usually common with the Lost Ark. So you hear Marion's theme, you hear these dissonant strings underneath, and then it just transitions into the Lost Ark theme. And the reason that John Williams... This is my theory. The reason that John Williams put these dissonant strings underneath Marion is basically to show that ultimately Indiana Jones knows that his priority is to find the Lost Ark, even though he has these feelings for Marion. So that's case number two. Case number three is to use the, scene, uh, use the themes as a means to foreshadow or tell a secret of what is happening in the story. So foreshadow, you think of Jaws. Okay, mm -hmm. you know that Jaws is coming because of that two-note motif, right? Bottom, bottom, okay? Mm -hmm. So you don't need anything else to, to tell you that you're about to get eaten alive by this shark, right? <laughs> um, then the secret, so I had done an, an analysis of the sixth sense and sorry for those people who have not seen the sixth sense yet but for those who have um, we all know that bruce willis is dead at the end but we don't realize that until we've seen the film R after analyzing the score i have found that james newton howard the composer of sixth sense actually tells you that bruce willis is dead since the beginning because he had established a theme that follows the sixth sense. So you need to use the sixth sense in order to see these people. And what's interesting is after the beginning, like the prologue, after uh, this, what was it? The, one of the old patients of the psychiatrist comes into the bathroom and shoots him. Mm -hmm. right? We don't know that he actually died from that. But James Newton Howard, in the first time that you see Bruce Willis after he talks to Cole, you hear the Sixth Sense theme. And it follows him from that point on. Because you need the Sixth Sense to see him. So he's dead the whole time. And you can tell this from the score. So anyway, so those are three different ways that I use themes in order to help tell the story and give your film more value. Um, well... I say more value, but it enhances the quality. It enhances the experience that your viewer is going to have because they are developing a sense of familiarity with your story through these, how do I say, sonic correlations, right? So you're tapping into their subconscious, creating these forms of association using themes in order for them to better understand the story and to take that story with them out of the theater. Okay. So, well, is it fair to say uh, that in order to be a truly great composer, that you also need to have 
an understanding of what comprises good storytelling and character motivation and stuff, which is obviously that goes beyond uh, necessarily the craft or the uh, rudimentary craft of uh, assembling a musical piece. Uh, Is that accurate to say? Yes. Because mm-hmm. composing is not just, or scoring a film, like you can compose something, right? You can write a piece of music, but scoring something is helping to tell the story using this extra layer of music. So you have to understand, so I'm going to, okay. So for example, whenever I'm working on a score with a filmmaker, I like to sit down with them and have the script in front of me first. So I like to be involved in the pre-production process and sit down with the filmmakers and discuss the story with them so that I can better understand what the story is. But also, I can also understand what the filmmakers want the viewers to take with them when they when they leave the theater. So it's not just that experience in the theater. What's the message that you want these viewers to take with them? And the best way to do that is one, not just successfully score it with, you know, the musical chops that you've acquired over the ages, but also in learning those, the the way that story arcs work to better develop the score. Right. So, um, so scores need to have a beginning and a middle and an end, just like a story does. Mm -hmm. So does that, well, and that's, that's yes. And actually, uh, you touched on something that I have, done with the films that I have done with uh, with an original score that I have gotten the composer in the loop from the get-go uh, because I can't even imagine doing, as a filmmaker, I can't even imagine doing what a lot of, I guess, what standard operating procedure is where you get picture lock after just about everything's already done and the composer has a short amount of time to get something together, and it just it ultimately comes out as padding rather than as a fully fleshed out musical entity. And right. I, I've done that very the thing you're describing, which is where I get the person involved from the onset, and that way they can get their brains uh, wrapped around the story and how to express it, and then. Uh, and that helps me too as a filmmaker because I tend to think, uh, well, visually, but also in relation to how the visuals and the music, compl- the music that's going to be there, how they complement each other. So, yeah, I, I can't even imagine doing it the other way. But I guess that that standard operating procedure, and to me, that is to the film's detriment. Right. Well, actually, to be honest, it is very common in the indie world in hollywood they actually have the composer involved as soon as possible uh they they start so when a rough cut is completed sometimes they ask the composer to create a temp track so instead of having an editor compile a temp track using other pieces they have the original composer come in or their music editor or whatever to come in and create an original quote unquote temp track but to give an idea. And what you're saying is that uh, sometimes uh, they'll have a composer come in and give a temporary track, like, like a promotional track. 
Well, yes. Um, so let me define uh, a temp track is a it's a track that is temporarily placed with a, a it's created of a compilation of musical pieces to help the composer or to use as reference for the composer when scoring the project. So uh, in in Hollywood and also for for promotional purposes, they will have then a composer create an original temp track. Um, so so usually again they they usually have them involved earlier but if you wait until picture lock in order to have to bring a composer on board the thing that i find a bit frustrating is that many indie filmmakers think that think music as an afterthought rather than being a part of the collaborative process the thing is that music and i can understand because unfortunately many composers that I've come across, they do it as a side gig. It's not their profession. Um, and so, but I mean, that's where I am now. I know that there are indie composers out there who do it full time. And for them, it's also frustrating to be involved later rather than sooner. Because again, just like any other key crew member, you have to have them involved earlier on. One, to develop that how do I say that attachment mm -hmm. to the film? Uh, so they, they actually feel invested in the film and in the story to be a part of the collaborative process and the, the thinking process. I mean, a lot of times music often tells a story within its own self. So uh, uh, when you're thinking as a composer to these films, you're obviously thinking along the storyline and, you know, you're getting a sense of, you know, what, uh, what the story might have a feel for in your mind. You, you know what I'm saying? Right. So. No, I, I, I get you. Um, so it, it's, again, it's like we help to tell the story. And so actually, so piggybacking off of what you said to me, a successful film score has to do all of four things. One, it has to support the film emotionally and through the story. Two, that on its own, if someone were to listen to the score, they could recall the film bit by bit. Three, that as a piece of music, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And four, that without the film and without the score, you can recall the music because it is a form of branding that we're also doing for your film. Mm -hmm. We are sonically tapping into the subconscious of our viewers to where they will forever remember the score and therefore forever remember the story of your film. So in a sense, the score is used to immortalize the film. Okay. So, because I mean, if you think about John Williams or Alan Silvestri, you know, all of their scores, Back to the Future, right? That's Alan Silvestri. You've got, uh, let me see, like John Williams, Jaws, Star Wars, E.T., Indiana Jones, right? Everybody or, knows this. Or even Goblins, a, a, a Goblin with uh, Argento. <laughs> Which, that, that's an interesting case because they're a band, you know, yeah. and it's like, you know, you you get occasionally you'll get that kind of thing where you have like 
uh, Daft Punk moving into uh, film music composition or like Junkie XL doing it or um, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross and how they tend to come from a different place, different discipline. Um, and so the sound is you know, like an instrumental piece for whatever their particular genre is. It, that generally is what happens. But uh, then you have, like, I think it was uh, Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead who did a lot of uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's later film scores, like There Will Be Blood and The Master and stuff. And those, they feel like more traditional film scores, and yet they're also very risky because they t do a lot of atonal stuff and um so it's it's kind of interesting that you bring that up yeah so okay. anyway yeah so don't 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 uh undergrade the <laughs> don't push the composer to the side and wait till the last minute <laughs> absolutely and I'm, I'm glad that you let me know about the differences of the hollywood and the indie world you know because that's What's funny, actually, to tie the two things together, uh, the kind of the opposite end of that spectrum is uh, where on uh, the American version of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, David Fincher had Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross do the music beforehand, and what happened was, and beforehand and during the shooting, and what happened was that they ended up with a three-disc-long um uh, you know, album for the soundtrack, most of which was never in the film because they composed way more music than they needed. Uh, which, on the one hand, if you're a fan of theirs or a fan of that kind of music, it's like, oh, look at that, you know, three discs worth. Uh, but I imagine that was a whole lot more work than was needed. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, one thing I would say, uh, so just for the sake of uh, the audience, uh, Trinity, your favorite composers, you already mentioned uh, John Williams and uh, James Newton Howard. You're also a fan of, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, like Howard Shore and um, uh, Thomas Newman and uh, who else would you name drop? Uh, so Ennio Morricone, uh -huh. Rachel Portman, and uh, actually what's interesting is that my favorite film score is done by a composer who has only done a few films. And uh, that's the score is, or the film is The Red Violin. So okay. that was done by John uh, Corigliano. Okay. And uh, American born, but with Italian influences. And that score is just beyond amazing because again, of the psychology that is behind that score. Um, I'm trying to think of any other names that really call to me. Mm, not at the moment. <laughs> so I'm sure, well, I mean, Alan Silvestri, definitely. Um, Jerry Goldsmith, Elmer Bernstein. Mm -hmm. So the, the classics, definitely. Okay. Well, and also uh, pre-Batman Begins Hans Zimmer, I would throw his name in there. Oh, yeah. No, pre, well, pre before, you know, well, I really enjoyed his romantic comedies, like The Holiday mm. and uh, Something's Gotta Give. 
Lion King, even though that's not a romantic comedy, but you know what I mean. Lion King was Han's score as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, his, his sound was really different. Like in his early days, like when he did um, Rain Man and True Romance and stuff, those were all him, and they don't sound anywhere close to where he where he got. Uh, just a short time after that, and especially not from the the Nolan era onward. Yeah, well, there's there's a truth behind that, but I'm not sure if I feel like revealing it in public. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I don't want to be shunned or burned. Uh-huh. So, that will be kept in secret another point. <laughs> moving into your first project that, uh, that uh, I can see here, um, um, why don't I ask you how you got involved with the film pro- uh, uh, film project short film Machina or Machina or Oh Machina. Machina. So it's too bad that he probably isn't listening on to this podcast, but he's definitely one of my favorite pe- uh, people. Um, Ian Wallace. I met him through CFA, the Carolina Film Association at UNC Chapel Hill. And he, <laughs> I decided to face my fears and just raise my hand, said, hey, guys, I'm interested in film scoring. And Ian came up to me and he said, hey, I've got a film for you. And at first it was like this very short, maybe three to four minutes. Uh, and I didn't have any of the gear or resources or whatever. I basically took a mini mic I hooked it up next to a digital piano, like little keyboard that I had in my dorm room, and I created an all piano score. And uh, and then from there, so he's like, "Oh my gosh, we actually have a film composer on campus!" Uh, <laughs> and uh, my last year, well, last complete year, so junior year, uh, UNC Chapel Hill, we were we had this film festival in the works but it ended up shutting down so then ian me and a a couple of other film students decided to put something together called the swain lot film festival and that little festival i was then asked to score machina a another person's uh series mini series uh with max james that's what that was the name of it and uh Daughter of Eden. It's just a bunch of little films. Oh, Plain Pine Box. Mm. Uh, you really taking me back. I remember all of those. Yeah, right. Um, and <laughs> basically, I stayed up like it was like I, I spent a week. Oh, it was during Easter break, mm. and I was in the studio learning how to use Logic through YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. And how to route uh, different kinds of softwares and using really, really crappy sample libraries. At the time, they were amazing. I mean, like these were the this was the first ones that we were like dealing with and that the school was able to have, and it was just really funny. Anyway, so through this experience, uh, that's when I learned the basics of film scoring, and I absolutely loved it, and I loved the thrill, and um, I remember hanging out with all of the filmmakers because everybody was trying to get their films done for this festival and it was a week and a half away. So I remember the director of Plain Pine Box and Ian 
we were we were at Swain. So Swain is the name of the the hall, the film uh, the film and communications. Okay. Where many many a filmmaking dream came yeah. true. <laughs> and and at three a.m. we're like we're hungry, so we ended up going to Cosmic Cantina. If you know what that is, Dane, it's like mm-hmm. a little a little hole in the wall Mexican place with the absolute best burritos. And yeah, was that was that that place that I met up with you that one time? Uh, it was next to the Walgreens, or was that a different place? Uh, it's near there, but mm-hmm. it's it's where the 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 pops the 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 icicles. It's 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 like a there's a little. You have to go through some doors, and there's like a, a staircase that goes down to a barber shop. But before uh, you get down the staircase, there's a, there's Cosmic Cantina. There's also a back door that comes from one of the parking lots. But anyway, and, and the sad part is that as we're describing all this and reminiscing, all those doors are probably all gone now. Because if you've ever been to Chapel, if you've been to Chapel Hill recently, everything's become really corporatized now. Oh, I know. Although Cosmic is still there. Oh, good. Cosmic good. is definitely still there. So anyway, um. So yeah, so that was the beginning of my film music career. Um, after I finished those films, and the next semester I had graduated because I graduated early, I was given a an opportunity to score another short film for someone locally. And uh, but I realized that my chops weren't nearly as high as I would have liked them to be. Um, I had also been commissioned to write an original piece for a contemporary ballet uh, or yeah it's a contemporary dance video performance thing and um so i realized that i wasn't going to get very far so that's why i applied to the mfa program if i showed you my reel from unc chapel hill to what it is now you (laughs) you'd be blown away (laughs) i i am blown away honestly because uh not that your prior work was bad or anything, it wasn't, but it uh, the difference between the two eras is pretty significant. I think you've grown quite a lot as an artist, and I am very happy to see that. One of, one of my, I hate to say regrets, because I don't really believe in regrets, but I would like it if we had had the chance to work together uh, back then, but I was like two years behind you and you were leaving just as I was starting to make halfway decent work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but, but at the same time we are getting back into that because uh, of my girlfriend's web series. So right. it, yeah, it, it has uh, connected again, but yes, I think that uh, your skills have most definitely improved by a pretty significant margin. Well, that's why I encourage everyone to get educated, you know, in what it is that they love to do. Learn your history, learn where it started so that you can develop your toolbox, learn the rules as they were made so you can break them in order to establish your own voice. And what's interesting is one of of uh, the directors that I interviewed uh, recently um, actually took a 10-year break and went back to school to you know, to to study film, uh, film. and uh, now that he's back, he's like on fire, you know. So it's like once you go through that process of learning what it is that you need to know, it's like 
now all of a sudden you you know what to do. <laughs> you know you know where, where your mistakes are and where you where you can accomplish something to an even greater amount. You know you know what I'm saying? Oh yeah, and and at the same time that you come to accept that you will make mistakes, but you have now trained your brain to take these mistakes and use them as growing experiences. Like every time that I'm working on a project, I learn something new, um, whether it's even a shortcut or uh, I've become a very good debugger <laughs> because just my hands in general, like I touch anything technological and it just goes up in smoke. But, uh, but I've learned how to go around that um, through these different experiences that, okay, now that this has happened, uh, I've experienced this before. I can fix this problem quicker, and uh, and make it better the next time. So um, it's it's like through education, you're developing that muscle, the muscle of uh, tolerating one's mishaps and developing patience to know that you're getting there. You will grow. You have to go through these things first in order to become better at your craft. You know, that's, that's good advice for anybody uh, that's really cares about something, you know, that they uh, that's that is a craft of some kind. Well, I know that you mentioned playing Pine Box within that Machina. I'm going to mention a few other titles here. And uh, I'll see what you have to say uh, uh, say about, uh, about your involvement with them. So going on from Plain Pine Box, uh, uh, there was Safe Haven, Straggler, uh, Gertie Gunther, Knits a Stitch. Why don't you tell me a, a little bit about those short films uh, that um, you Yeah, so Plain Pine Box was still part of that UNC Chapel Hill experience. Yeah. So this was pre-grad. Straggler was, um, oh, so I'm guessing you're looking at my IMDb page, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. There are a lot of short films in there that are not listed um, that I've, I've been working on since Which, then. Um, if you'd like to say anything about them, you're more than welcome to, you know, uh, tell sure. us anything that you want. This is your time. <laughs> no, I get you. I get you. Um, Straggler was during my second year of grad school, um, and uh, it was one of the first scores that I really got to record some live instruments, but the score that I'm probably most proud of, which was done around the same time, uh, was for a short film called Tethered. It was my master's thesis, and that year I was the only student who was able to record a full orchestra so a 60 piece orchestra for that uh, for that film okay. and um but the thing is that the film very much related to what i was going through at the time uh the the film itself is about a an event inventor who goes up into the sky in a hot air balloon and the aviator of this hot air balloon basically helps him to come to terms with who he is, uh, like what he's, what is his passion. He feels that because the fathers before him were inventors and scientists, he had to be one as well. So he invented a machine that when it plays his music, manipulates the weather. And the 
hot air balloonist is basically like, no, 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 you're, you're not a scientist, you're an artist, because it is your music that is making this happen. And my mom was very much the same way that she, well, my mom was, she was the one that said, you have to study math or science in order to make a living, right? In order to survive in this world, mm -hmm. you cannot be an artist or else you're going to end up flipping burgers and starving for the rest of your life. And, um, and I mean, she, it's an interesting story, but, uh, that summer before I had transferred to UNC Chapel Hill, because I actually studied forensic chemistry my first year of undergrad, okay. and um, which I absolutely adored. And I actually did better like grade-wise in chemistry than I did in music, because music's really hard. Um, yeah. People don't think so, but it is. Um, but anyway, so when I was transferring to UNC Chapel Hill, my mom basically said that you're going to starve to death. And I was miserable that summer. But until I started taking composition lessons at UNC Chapel Hill, uh, she didn't realize what it was that I did. She listened to me play on the piano while I was visiting one weekend. And she realized that, or she basically asked me if, if I was playing Bach and my mom was, was rather musically inept. And I said, no, mom, that's not Bach, that's me. And two to three days, she didn't speak to me until one morning she woke me up very early, around 6.30 a.m. And I'm not a morning person. And she, <laughs> said, she said to me, uh, if I'm not on the VIP list for the Academy Awards, I'm taking you out of my will. And she firmly believed that she had received a premonition from God, basically saying that I was going to win Best Original Score in the Academy <laughs> Awards. So she did a complete 180 and completely supported me. And she did everything in her power for me to get to where I want to be um, as a film composer. The thing is that that year, that last year of, of my master's, she passed away. I'm sorry to hear And um, from, well, she, she passed away. And what was absolutely infuriating was that, I mean, it was infuriating Okay, we found out afterwards, um, while we were cleaning up her things, we found a folder of hers that contained all of her writings. And she wrote short stories, and she wrote uh, long stories. She loved reading books. She was a writer. She always wanted to be a writer. And because her parents basically said, uh, <laughs> you have to do math and science, uh, or math or science, in order to survive in this world, she did not pursue it. And so... She, because of how she was raised, she wanted, she felt that that's what she had to tell me as well. But once she realized that I was really passionate and what it is that I love to do and too stubborn to do anything else, she decided to live vicariously through me. So um, what was very fresh, what is very frustrating now is that I'm succeeding in what it is that I love to do, but she's not around for me to be able to speak to her about what it means to be an artist from an artist to another. So that master's thesis tethered the idea of pursuing one's dreams and having people around you to support you. But um, you have a very emotional attachment to it because it means a lot to you. Yeah. So it, it's definitely my, my best piece of music or my, my best score so far um, because it just, it fleshed out all of these emotions and it's, especially during such a hard time. So, um, so yeah, 
that's tethered. Um, after that, I worked on... Uh, I got an orchestration credit for Tiny Shoulders Rethinking Barbie in Los Angeles, but I really actually did not get to work on my own things until I came back to Charlotte. And um, that's why I feel it was a, a sure sign that I'm meant to be back here so that I could pursue what it is that I love to do and not just be someone's assistant. Um, so I've worked on... Let's see. There was a fire that came out of Asheville. I worked on Whatever It Is by Mike Rita. Um, oh, actually, there was a fire. It was by uh, Tabitha and Mason McDonald. Um, and yeah, Whatever It Is by Mike Rita and the folks at Apple Box Cinema. I've worked on Dear Veronica by Wendy Whitus. I've worked on, I'm working on a film called Grace and Training by Andy Heck and Adrian Parrish. Um, and I will be working, and I also worked on a commercial um, for a, a dental company by uh, Red Top Studios. Um, that's Dylan Hahn. And then I will be working on multiple other shorts, um, a war documentary, a feature, a feature length war documentary later on this year, as well as possibly and hopefully a feature film family, family children's oriented called Shenanigans. Uh, kind of think of think of little rascals um indeed <laughs> and um and that's coming out of columbia south carolina um and i have a couple of other potential projects coming out of california florida and new york so, so you're just a slacker is what you're telling us oh yeah you know and and i'm teaching and i'm trying to you know self-promote doing this film and music video series so that's the other thing if you want to learn things about film music or how to work with a composer or my process or fun facts or you know ask me any questions i do a weekly video series that i post to facebook and instagram um through my business page called real scoring on facebook so follow if you want to you know learn crap ton of stuff of film music and all that jazz this week we'll be talking about temp love the horrors <laughs> of temp love because it's halloween and um we'll be talking about different ways that temp love uh ruined the careers of some of our favorite composers so. well and actually so I've, I've watched those videos on instagram and i really like them obviously you have the gift for teaching uh you know so now i feel like anybody listening to this or any Filmmakers who are looking for a great quality score should definitely check out those uh, videos and check out your work because I know that you have the uh, academic prerequisites with which to give them something that's quality. Not to mention, obviously, um, access to the uh, access to better equipment than you would have had. Uh, at UNC, even though, you know, what you had was certainly good to start off with. Yeah. Are there, yeah. Any, are there any other projects that you would like to share with us that you have worked on? And uh, uh, I guess my second question is, uh, uh, besides Tethered, are there any other um, projects that you've worked on that have stood out to you that you really enjoyed working on? Um. Well, I mean, that's, that's the thing is that I enjoy working on every single project that's coming my way or that has come my way just because each and every one of them is different. And um, the only filmmaker that I've worked with more than once 
um, is actually Sean Rooney, and um, he's the director of Gertie, uh, Gertie Gunther Knits a Stitch and Straggler. And those are two completely different genres. I mean, you had a drama, a dramedy in a sense. It was more like a lighthearted drama about um, this old couple and this the, the elderly woman <clears throat> trying her hand at a sewing contest and basically rediscovers love with her husband through that experience. Um, and then the second film he did, Straggler, is a drama horror about a woman who comes to terms with the death of her husband through a ghost, which, and she's actually a ghost exterminator, or in other words, a ghostbuster, but a ghost exterminator, and she's trying to exterminate this ghost, but it's through interaction with him, it's a, it's a boy ghost, um, he, uh, she, she comes to, to cope with her husband's death. So, um, so I mean, these are all really great stories. Uh, Tethered was a great story. Uh, there was a fire. Was a short, ex- kind of like a psychological horror, uh, somewhat experimental film, um, and that was a lot of fun. And you know, because it was shorter and it was mostly mostly atmospheric synth scoring. Um, whatever it is, was really great horror, like down, like. Th- for sure, horror film. Uh, Dear Veronica is a... Um, it's a psychological drama. It's a dark drama. Actually, what I call them is a t- twisted drama. So it was a twisted <laughs> drama. And um, I'm trying to think of... And Grace in Training is another drama. Um, but it's coping with the... I don't want to say a loss of a parent, but not having a, a, a parent present in your growth uh, through the presence of a stranger. So, um, so it's, you know, th- these are all great stories. Uh, the war documentary is going to be very heartfelt. Um, and the other shorts that I have coming in, I have dark comedies coming in, other twisted dramas, more horrors, supernatural, sci-fi. Um, and uh, I have got... I've got possibly a comedy coming in from New York. Um, nice. A great autobiographical drama coming from California. You know, it's there's just all these different things. It's just that's that's why I love doing what I love to do. I'm I'm not bored when I'm doing it. It's always a fun experience um, because I, I I get to you know everybody wants something different. Every story is different, and so mm-hmm. it's just the idea of. Like I was thinking about this the other day. It's like, why is it that I love film scoring so much? It's like a puzzle. Um, I'm a huge fan of jigsaw puzzles, but it's it's the idea of finding the right, ing- and I also enjoy cooking too, but it's, you know, finding the right ingredients or the right components in order to create a story that moves people or a score that moves people. Okay. Um, so, yeah. Is there... Any way uh, that uh, anybody can see some of these short uh, short films that uh, uh, that, that you uh, uh, may have scored, like maybe on YouTube or Vimeo, uh, to check some of these out, to to listen to um, some of the scores that you've actually uh, accomplished so far. I know I know that some of them are in Vimeo somewhere. I would have to find links, but um, but I do have my reel and I have my SoundCloud. Um, I mean, if you just contact me, I'm sure I can find the links for you. Um, okay. Oh, that's another one that I completely like 
did not think about Splash. Um, that's probably yeah. I was I was going to ask you. I was going to transition into like how you love to do animation scoring. Yeah, animation is probably my favorite genre because okay. you need you need a score. You need a very animatic score in order to bring life to something that is not realistic, right? So. Um, Anyway, so this film that I had done a few years ago, um, it was actually during my first year in grad school. Uh, it's a it's a 3D animation by Gavin Langford, and he he gave me the opportunity to score this film, and I've been submitting it to a bunch of festivals now that it's no longer. Um, now that we have the freedom to submit it to more festivals, it's not just under the jurisdiction of the school. Um, I've been able to submit it to a bunch of different places. So, um, so far it's pretty much gotten into every single festival or film event except for two. But I realized that the other two didn't have any other animations. So it's probably that they didn't like it. It's probably, or it's probably that it's probably because it was an animation and it wouldn't fit. Uh, not that they didn't like it, because um, I haven't met anyone who did not like Splash. Um, and uh, it's just a fun, it's a really fun animation uh, dealing with uh, children's bath toys and how they come to life. And basically they have a life of their own, their own story, while the kid in the bathtub is playing with them. Like So kind of like the long, long lines of Toy Story, right? Where Toy Story... All the toys have their own experiences, their own life, their own feelings and emotions. But, okay. But the kids don't know, right? Um, so in this case, it's just, it's a four and a half minute animation. You can contact me and, um, you know, I'll share a private link with you or whatever. But it's also hitting the festival circuit all over the, the southeast. Um, so, yeah, I mean, might might go over that way. But three years ago, it ended up getting into... Kukalorists and Full Bloom Film Festival and um, a bunch of other little places. Um, so, yeah. Alrighty. Well, one thing I've noticed about the whole festival thing is that sometimes it's, well, the quality of the film itself, and then other times it's, you know, will it fit or will the audience be receptive to it or whatever, and you know, that's what I have found out with the films that I've done is that uh, they've tended to have a bit of difficulty in the festival circuit because they're so different and perhaps esoteric, you know, so that's something to keep in mind. Um, but uh, that actually does transition into something else I was going to ask, which was um, your predilections and your background and training uh, for very good reason, are well rooted in the classics uh, of film composition, according to more that theory of music composition. And then occasionally um, you will get composers that either come out of another genre, another part of music, like Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, or you know, you get somebody, uh, you know, like Peter Gabriel, who, you know, came out of, yes, ostensibly uh, what we would call, like, experimental uh, rock, and then created 
a masterpiece of world music with his soundtrack for The Last Temptation of Christ called uh, Passion. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that kind of leads me into, like, you, what do you think about more avant-garde scores? Do you, do you think that there should be more or less, you know, what is your general feeling about that? Well, um, I know that in order to appeal to the masses, you have to have as many, many differentiations in music as possible. Not everyone is going to like orchestral scoring. Not everyone's going to like electronic. Um, you know, there there are so many different avenues for scoring and, and and just music writing in general, right? I mean, you've got pop, hip hop, rap, rock, country, uh, jazz, right? Uh, Latino, reggaeton, merengue, salsa, bachata. Like you know, the list goes on and on and on. Um, and uh, it's it's because not everyone is going to like the same thing. People have different roots. People have different experiences. And it's the same thing with film scores. Um, I feel that certain films will not call to... Or certain scores will not appeal to some people, whereas others will. So, um, like, I remember the score to Jacob's Ladder. Okay. Creepy. Oh yeah, uh, you know, really. There's a lot of synth and some orchestral elements, and you know, things like that. Um, but it's a very much an effective score. It does not have to be heavily orchestral, like epic John Williams, in order to have the effect that it's so uh, successfully had on their viewers, right? So, um, I do, however, believe that. When it comes to these films like Marvel and DC, um, I have I have a problem with those uh, those scores because they are meant to be epic. They are meant to be memorable, right? Um, just like you would think of Star Wars, right? These are epics. Mm-hmm. These are these are comics that have attracted so many people through the the ages, mm-hmm. and the scores don't really amount to very much um and it's simply because well one a lot of the composers who are working on these epic orchestral scores are not classically trained that or not well classically trained or do not understand how to make a how do i say a psychologically appealing theme or melody that it doesn't attach to this, the viewer's psyche. Two, they, uh, all of these Marvel DC films are pretty much working off of the same temp track. Unfortunately, that just means that all of them are going to sound the same. Mm-hmm. And three, because they don't have, the composers do not have the resources in order to successfully score these films. Um, producers are expecting them to score them within three months with a specific budget. And that budget ends up like, for example, a composer may be given $500,000 to do a feature-length Marvel film in three to four months. Now, that might seem like a lot of money, but they have to, con- they have to take care of everything that is involved in making the score. That means from conception to delivery. So they have to take care of renting the studio spaces, hiring contracts, 
contractors in order to hire musicians, pay for the musicians, get the engineers, get the orchestrators, copyists, um, you know, even the PAs that come in and set up the mics, you know, um, the the caterers in order to feed all the people in the uh, in the ISO booth, like there's or ISO booth, the recording booth, you know. Um, so it's just ka-ching, 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 ka-ching. And it, it's going to take at least three or four days worth of recording. So um, I can tell you that some of these, so there are only like three major scoring stages. You have Warner Brothers, Sony, and um, and Fox. And uh, and I can tell you that they they range five to $10,000 just for one session. That's three hours long. So, and that's just the studio. That does not include the musicians um, and sometimes not even the engineers. So if you think about that, you know, that's, that's a good chunk of that payment already. So now the composers have to consider, all right, well, what am I willing to sacrifice quality-wise in order to, well, to be able to pocket some of that money that I've worked so hard to get, you know? So then it becomes the question quality versus quantity. So um, it's not exactly geared to what's, what you were asking, Dane, but it's, it's, it's a side note um, where, you know, I, I feel that we do need differentiation in scores and different, different um, orchestrations, right? That it's not just orchestral, but you also have synth and sometimes you have hybrids and electroacoustics and things that, that can still... It, uh, affect us emotionally, but will affect different people differently, right? I mean, again, it's like you need to appeal to as many people as possible um, in order to, to, how do I say, to... To get the thing off the ground? <laughs> you know, well, well, I mean, also to... To evoke emotions, to evoke the evoke these, um, in order to get these stories brought around, right, and and shared, um, but then there's also just the idea that even though, or if you're going to do a different genre, or if you're going to stick to a specific genre, do it well, and uh, and that's what I'm I'm finding is a struggle in in today's film music, especially in Hollywood. This is why I went to indie versus sticking in Hollywood because at that point it's more about making entertainment and not art. So, um, anyway. Well, a couple, a couple little quick notes. Uh, I think I, I talked to you about this on our own, but, um, Danny Elfman, I don't think watched justice league as he was writing the score. He was just writing it basically out of his own imagination, which, it kind of shows when you listen to it. I mean, that it's not a bad score, but it's just like you could really tell that this was composed essentially in a vacuum, and it to me it came across. Um, but then also, uh, there was the time in film history because it's partially what you were talking about is where we're at now, because nowadays conventionality, I think, is largely the norm whereas like in the 70s and late 60s there were it was okay to be more experimental in your uh in your thinking because like um obviously a clockwork orange which that's not necessarily an original score because a lot of that's uh classical music covered on a moog uh 
is it Moog or Moog uh, synthesizer? Moog. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, but the point is, like, you could afford to do that, or like something like the original Planet of the Apes score, um, which is very avant-garde even today. Um, you know, it's just like there was a time when that kind of thing was acceptable, or even like um, the one I mentioned before, Passion by Peter Gabriel. That is, it is world music, but it's also very just strange and alien, and I love it because it sounds completely unlike anything else I'd ever heard. Um, and it, uh, you know, so it's like there are pockets of those, but it's just, it does seem like. I feel like we need to get back to uh, to that. Now, actually, some blending of those two ideas, there have been a couple of those, like Daft Punk's uh, Tron Legacy score, all the stuff that Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross have been doing with David Fincher, and uh, Junkie XL's uh, score for uh, Batman v Superman, and especially for uh, Mad Max Fury Road, I thought were pretty good. And kind of a slightly different uh, than your typical uh, score. At least I, I thought so. But it's like, it's good that we're able to get some variation in there, but it's still not quite where I personally would like to see it go. You know, I'd, I'd like to see us... I'm always a fan of, like, what artistically is going to push the medium forward. You know, that's always what I look for. And I do feel like Musically, we need to get there a little bit more than we have been on top of just filmmaking itself. Well, um, yeah. You want to be able to enjoy uh, a feature uh, uh, and remember it for its music, remember it uh, for its performances on top of, you know, you know, remembering certain scenes. Uh, you know, you want all of them to be equalized. Which that actually does... Uh, make me jump to a different thing, which is a related thing, but it's, uh, do you, uh, Trinity, do you find yourself influenced by any particular world sounds? Because obviously, um, every country, every region of the world has its own unique instruments that, you know, are created in that part of the world, and so they have their own sound, and I'm sure that a lot of that depends on where the story is set that would necessitate a certain sound, but not all the time. But do you find yourself particularly drawn to any uh, regional sounds or any particular elements of world music? Um, that's a really good question because actually I, I've one of my side passions or like dreams would be to travel the world and be more of an ethnomusicologist so basically travel the world go to different societies and check out what instruments each each culture uses for whatever purposes um in order to well better represent them in my scores as well um especially when you go into documentary filmmaking and documentary scoring i want to be able to represent a region as um as appropriately or you know legitimately as i can um but for any specific region um no because it's like it's like food 
I'm a foodie. <laughs> I, I love to eat and I don't really have a a favorite cuisine as long as it as it tastes well and adds to my experience then that's that's all I really want right it's just you're it's it's adding to my bucket of experiences and in in this sense you know adding to my um to my never ending or my bottomless well of information and well experiences in that sense too um for whenever i'm scoring um but i will tell you that one thing that really bugs me is especially in today's scoring the overuse of the deduke i think it uh well yeah it's overused i'm i'm tired of hearing it i hear it all the time and um i'm not going to name any names but Let's say there is a show that uh, takes place in the somewhat future and deals with intergalactic traveling and whatnot. They use this, or the composer who did, who scored for this uh, TV series, ended up using the Daduk for to represent two completely different cultures. And um, for that, I, I thought that was a huge mis misrepresentation because they're two completely different cultures. Um, actually, in, as a matter of fact, they're two conflicting cultures. And yet the same instrument is representing them. So psychologically and tonally and timbrally, it's just very com confusing. Um, <laughs> so, and, and unfortunately, it's, it's an instrument that composers today are using a lot in order to represent something exotic and it's like look there's there are only so many regions that actually use the deduke stop mm -hmm. using it for every single culture that is not of this world or foreign or whatever mm -hmm. so, apparently it's indigenous to armenia that mm -hmm. instrument uh I know for myself, I tend to be, well, I'm like you, I understand the appeal of music from all over the world. I tend to, personally, I tend to be attracted to music from uh, the Middle East as well as from uh, Japan. I think that they sound, those particular sounds, they're very distinct, and I personally would like to see uh, more films use i'd like to see them use more instruments that are not necessarily indigenous to any particular region so that way you could hear it in a different way because uh, it is as much as you know using certain instruments that are indicative of a culture as much as that it's a good shorthand it does kind of limit your palette you know or your uh your canvas for what this instrument can signify, right. you know. Um, and that actually does remind me, uh, another good one who's uh, a good composer who is very musically diverse and distinctly not Western is uh, A.R. Rahman. Um, you know, he his uh, stuff I thought was quite good for uh, Slumdog Millionaire, and he did it uh, score for a uh, million-dollar arm as well. Mm -hmm. 
another another one I'm a fan of is uh, I might be butchering his name, but uh, Ramin uh, Dijualdi. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy who did uh, Game of Thrones and uh, Westworld. And he also did the very first uh, Iron Man score as well. Hmm. Okay. Alrighty, so uh, I want to thank you for uh, uh, coming on, and I, I know that uh, that um, your friends with Dane, but I appreciate you uh, being able to come on and, and uh, voice um, uh, uh, some of the things that you've been able to do and uh, accomplish, and uh, I appreciate getting to know you through this uh, this interview and through through your eyes. So. Um, Appreciate you being able to come on tonight. Well, I appreciate you inviting me. It's been a great experience. Well, I know we planned on doing this some time ago, so. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, uh, For everything. Yeah, that was me. I uh, got a little detained by things, but uh, at the same time, uh, you know, there's always a great time to be introduced to. Uh, Future, uh, well, collaborators, friends, connections, all that kind, of, all that good stuff. Oh, yeah. Never, no, that never goes away. So, um, uh, why don't you tell the audience uh, 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 um, how uh, uh, they can get a, ho uh, a hold of you? Is there like a website that you have um, for getting in contact with you, or uh, can people just get in contact with you via Facebook, or how can that happen? So yeah, that's. Um, so you can find me on Facebook um, under Christina Trinity Velas Justo. Christina spelled with C, no H. Um, and you can find uh, my Facebook business page, Real Scoring, R-E-E-L Scoring. You can also find me on Instagram uh, under Real Scoring. Okay. You can also find me under Twitter, Real Scoring. Um, and if you can technically go on, go on my website as well, but it, it still needs to be finessed a bit. Um, my husband's been kind of lazy on that. He's my he's my tech guy. Um, but that's uh, he's been busy making games, hasn't he? Yeah, that's true. Um, so uh, www.realscoring.com. But really, you can just find me on uh, on Facebook. And then if you have, if you would prefer to email me, you can email me at Christina C R I S T I N A at realscoring.com. Okay. Well, like I said, I said, I appreciate you being able to come on. And uh, if there's any directors in the near future that, that would like to use us uh, in in the near future to promotionalize uh, uh, an effort that they may, that may they may have done and that you're involved with, feel free to contact either myself or or, or Dane can probably get get a hold of me as well. So. Mm -hmm. Um, I would be glad to try to promote um, any effort that uh, you might be in, uh, be involved with, or you might know. So. Well, I'll try and drive business your way as much as possible. <laughs> so, um, on that note, I'm going to uh, 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 tell uh, uh, tell everyone to say good night. 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 And. Uh, <laughs> They, uh, uh, stay tuned because uh, this week we have a double feature coming up uh, on Tuesday, 
uh, e e evening at 9 p.m., the normal time for Inside Movies Galore Crew. Uh, we will be going on about uh, about John Carpenter's Halloween and the reboot or remake. Yes. Uh, so the, the, the forty year later sequel. The sequel yeah. The, yeah, the sequel to the uh, to uh, to the original. Uh, at least that's what they uh, say. So uh, I'm going to throw a little uh, trivia on there. I realized that uh, the new Halloween, John Carpenter ended up working with his sons on the score, and even though they ended up, so he ended up using the same themes in order to create that nostalgic effect but he revamped them using uh newer technology um new synths that were also created with his sons and um and also applying some really cool guitar effects so <laughs> just FYI. <laughs> and, and trent reznor and atticus ross actually did a really cool cover of the halloween theme uh which you can find on youtube it sounds wonderful <laughs> well, I'm I'm definitely going to be seeing the uh, movie before the show for the first time. So yeah, I'll I'll need to see it tomorrow too. <laughs> well, I'm I'm choosing to go on the five dollar Tuesdays at, le at least. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty. Well, uh, thanks again for coming on, um, Dean. Uh, thanks for coming on as well, and uh, hopefully uh, uh, th uh, this will uh, this will help. Uh, Boost you a little bit, uh, a bit more, and get people to know a little bit. I'm going to show, uh, I'm going to share this to as many groups as I can. To, awesome. Um, well, thank you a lot. Appreciate yep. that, David. Yep. Uh, and uh, you have a good afternoon or evening, uh, whatever you have going on. So, uh, so uh, I'm going to stop the broadcast right now. So good afternoon, everyone. This has been Inside Movies. My mother thanks you, my father thanks you, my sister thanks you, and I thank you. <laughs>